0: And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. I am confident that the Democratic Party will reunite on the basis of democratic principles and that together we will march towards a democratic victory in 1980.
1: I think the Democratic leadership understands that we need to bring those people into the party. We need to transform the party. We need to make the Democratic Party a Democratic Party with a small d. I think the future of the party is working class, and I think that what I represent, and, and perhaps, you know, Senator Sanders, also Senator Warren, there's a lot of working class champions in the Democratic Party, and I do think that that's the future. Welcome to Talking Strategy, Making History. I'm Dick Flex, activist, retired professor of sociology
0: and a really old guy. And I'm Daraka Laramore-Hall, a slightly less old guy and also an activist and political strategist. And on this season on Talking Strategy, Making History, we're going to be talking about one of the big questions for progressive strategy here in the United States in what we're calling A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Democratic Party. Hello, hello. Doraco, hey, good to get started. I think it's a an important question. This big thing called the Democratic Party that uh, progressives seem to talk a lot about, but not make a lot of sense about. So what what was the uh, what was the impetus for getting this ball rolling, Dick? Why why are we here talking about the Democratic Party?
1: Because I keep reading things from the left about the electoral process and feeling. That a lot of thinking is not there that needs to be perhaps there, not only about the immediate election, but but I guess even more missing is thinking beyond that. Why are we ambivalent about it, but also why is it a framework of action? And uh, we've got our own experiences, you and me. That's for sure. Rich experience that we thought we would share. So that's the idea.
0: I think that's a great place to start and to think about you know what what is the Democratic Party you know before we can think about should we vote for it all the time should we get involved with it should we ignore it should we try to replace it and it seems like there's a lot of people on the left who understand that for one reason or another it, the Democratic Party's got to be reckoned with uh, we got to have some strategy of it but with it and around it but it's almost like uh, you remember that episode of South Park years ago. Uh, with the underpants gnomes. I don't get it. Phase one, collect underpants.
1: Phase two. Phase three, profit. Oh, I get it. No, you don't, fat (laughs) ass
0: Their strategy for world domination was, you know, missing a key element. So they had, you know, phase one to steal all the underpants. And then phase two was missing. And phase three was uh, profit. And often the left in the United States when talking about and thinking about the democratic party, there's an understanding, okay, there's phase one. We've got to get involved in the democratic party. We've got to work with or in or around the democratic party. Uh, don't really know what that means or what that looks like or what phase two is, but phase three is some kind of progressive change. We know that uh, good will come of it, but, but what really is it? Um, and how do you act, be active in it and keep your wits about you and so forth. And I think what's great about this conversation is, you know, this isn't, this is not a new argument, it's not a new question, and we've been uh, reckoning with it and, and, and dealing with it or ignoring it for generations. So when, when did the Democratic Party become a question for you?
1: Well, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. My parents were commies. They were, re- I was a red diaper baby, and they were supporting for the presidency of the United States, Henry Wallace who at that time was really the champion of progressive grassroots in America. He'd been Roosevelt's vice president, but then kicked out of that role uh, because uh, conservative Democrats hated him. He was in Harry Truman's cabinet. And Henry Wallace decided to run for president as an independent on a new party platform called the Progressive Party. Mr. Henry Wallace in the news again. He's out to form a third party. The American people must have more than a choice between evils. They must have a chance to vote for the greatest good, for the greatest number. Only through the organization of a new party in 1948 can the people of the United States voice their true desires and aspirations. To that end, I announce that I will run as an independent candidate in 1948 for President of the United States. My parents enthusiastically supported him. I, at 10 years old, enthusiastically supported him. As you do, as you do. In Brooklyn, Henry Wallace came just about a month before the November election to my street, and there were thousands of people in the street. So my view as a ten-year-old was, this guy is going to really—he may not win, but there's going to be a huge vote for Henry
0: Wallace. So that would have been like being ten years old at one of these big Bernie Sanders rallies in 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 Brooklyn in this last cycle.
1: Yes, he strongly wanted a progressive agenda for America, including national health insurance and rights of labor and a whole variety of issues like that. And so he split with Truman, quit the cabinet, and decided to run for president. But he didn't seem to think that he could run against Truman within the Democratic Party. In those years, Never, no one ever ran against the incumbent president within his own
0: party. And it would have been really hard, right? There were no primaries or very few primaries, right?
1: That's right. So they started a party called the Progressive Party. And... Um, I think early polling showed that he was going to get maybe 10% at least of the national vote. Okay, election night, late afternoon. I remember this so well because Tilly, our neighbor upstairs, who respected my parents quite well, and she knew very much that they were enthusiastic supporters of of the progressive party. She comes down, she says, Mildred, I'm very ashamed of myself. Oh, no. Because I, I just voted, and in the voting booth, I voted for Truman.
0: Oh, Tilly.
1: And Tilly says, look, I was in there, and I realized that if I vote for Wallace, Dewey will be elected. Dewey was the Republican candidate. He'd been governor of New York. He was not that far right wing, but he was certainly not a New Deal FDR type Democrat by any stretch. Till he said, "Well, I, I I just couldn't bring myself to to do something that would put Tr- Dewey in there, so I voted for Truman."
0: And it was a close election in the end, right? I mean, that's the famous uh, headline of of Dewey beats Truman uh, incorrectly, right? Exactly,
1: yeah, exactly. All the polling showed that Dewey would win the election. So, <clears throat> and part of that was based on the assumption that Wallace would take a lot of the Democratic vote. And by the way, the final outcome was shocking for the people who were supporting Wallace because he, he got maybe less than 3% of the total national vote. He got fewer votes than Strom Thurmond, who was also running independent as a racist, white supremacist candidate, right. uh, got more votes than Wallace in the final election.
0: Running as a Dixiecrat that year, right? As a Dixiecrat, Yeah. So that, so we could call that in a sense that's like the Tilly test. That's right. And she, she got into the polling booth and she was like, look, I, I like this Wallace guy. My neighbors like this Wallace guy, but the math here is such that I could be in the end giving a vote to Dewey. So that, that basic mathematical question, the vote splitting, we that's the, that's what Tilly gives us that we have to th- always think about in, in these elections That the bottom line is. We, we have to prevent there from being a worse outcome than the one we don't like. There's one that's worse out there that we have to prevent. That, that's what Tilly teaches us, no?
1: Yes. And there's a language now of uh, not only now, even back then. And what the Progressive Party was telling people in 1948 was don't go for the lesser evil, go for the good guy. Right. And um, people, millions vote, who would have voted for Wallace, who, who like Wallace, decided to go for the, quote, lesser evil, unquote. Uh, there's something wrong with the idea of the lesser evil uh, as as a co- way of thinking about this.
0: There's something wrong with it if it keeps being unsatisfactory for people, like the, the people keep pushing back on it and saying we want a different kind of choice than choosing between evils. And yet it also keeps coming up as a persistent reality. Um, and those the 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 lesserness, the distance between the evils uh growing uh, greater perhaps day by day. I mean, as you pointed out, right the you look at someone like Dewey uh, as a, a a paragon of a certain a certain kind of republicanism of the time um that did in fact accept certain conditions of the New deal um and was in some ways better than the Democrats or, you know, in in terms of integration and race on on uh, in in certain parts of the country at least but it was still worthwhile to beat him now in the days of donald trump and a really far right republican party like you know tilly's tilly's lesson is is all the more stark and more and more people you know
1: even if they don't like it, um, realize that, th- that that's the choice. I mean, so one lesson I drew from that that has stayed with me ever since is we really do have a two-party system, at least in federal elections, national elections, that could be modified, but it would have to be through uh, major reforms in how the political process works in this country. So given the two-party system uh, to work within, how, how do we advance uh, fundamental social change, structural change in, in the electoral process, or can we do so? That's what I learned at that time from that. Since then, I've also understood that, you know, Wallace failed to get the backing of even the most, most of the liberal labor unions at the time because they made the same calculation uh, and stuck with Truman. It is a good question whether uh, Wallace had even with all the barriers to getting anywhere, what if he had run within the Democratic Party? By the way, Truman did advocate national health insurance, what was then called socialized medicine, in his presidential run, as a way of undercutting Wallace. That was another part of the
0: process as Truman went to the left responding to the threat, responding to a to a threat from the left.
1: Yeah. That didn't mean we got any health. We still
0: don't have it. Right. But we got him to change his position.
1: We got him to change his position. 70 years later, uh, we're still fighting for the same uh, kind of health system that he advocated then.
0: That's right. And in the news recently, right, was the decision of the the platform committee of the Democratic National Convention uh, not to include a strong language on single payer health care or Medicare for all um, in this year's platform. So um, here we are, you know, the 70 years later, not only fighting to make it a reality in the United States, but it's still, um, and in, if anything, an, an even more difficult or controversial topic when it comes to the elite of the Democratic Party than it was back in the late 40s. And that's a bunch of history, right, that that we have in between Uh, Wallace running for president as a Big P progressive and today, and a lot of history that you've been involved with um, as a a thinker, but also as an activist in students for a democratic society, what kind of democratic party as a young adult did you confront as an activist with your compatriots, um, your fellow activists uh, trying to push for more fundamental and radical change in the 1960s. So
1: 1962 is when SDS was founded, and we actually discussed this in, in great depth uh, because at that time, the Democratic Party had its southern wing, the same Dixiecrats. And what that meant, among other things, was that we had a number of southern states that were one-party states. The Democratic Party was the only party The senators elected from those states had the greatest seniority in the Senate. So the heads of the major Senate committees were all white supremacists. I don't mean just reluctant to pass civil rights laws. I mean white supremacists. The head of the Judiciary Committee was James Eastland. That was his entire agenda, white supremacy. Uh, And they were Democrats. So, of course, from our point of view, at least in the SDS Uh, world. The first task is to drive those people out of the Democratic Party. There was a political science uh, doctrine in those days, maybe still, that a better system is where the two parties represent ideological difference. Realignment,
0: they called it, right?
1: Realignment. So one goal that we supported was driving the Dixiecrats or the Southern Uh, white racist side of the Democratic Party into the Republican Party, drive it out of the Democratic Party, uh, which I must say did happen,
0: right? Not just because of the activism of the new left or SDS, but no, the 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 civil civil rights movement primarily pushing the Democratic Party to be an inhospitable place that's right for the Southern Democrats. Lyndon Johnson signing the voting rights bill, he said, I've
1: just killed the Democratic Party in the South because. Uh, if we give blacks the right to vote, the whites will be voting, and it you know right. will not stay with the party.
0: And the election map has borne that out.
1: Yeah, well, see so the other the other part of the of the of the Democratic Party that we despised uh, was were, were the urban machines. Most famously, at that time, was the Mayor Daley Democratic machine in in Chicago, uh, which was maybe the last really. Uh, really dynamic urban machine in the country. Uh, there'd been a long process of battling against the machine by reform-minded Democrats and, and civic people. Uh, the machines were were these patronage operations that provided uh, people living in the cities, sort of divided them by ethnic identity and and provided them with jobs and services and and a kind of a and a kind of identity, really, but not not pol- not much in the way of progressive policy. And uh, it's a, p- a pretty complicated story. But the machines were profoundly undemocratic, and in Chicago, that was a, a another one-party dictatorship. So I would say the southern racism and the and the northern corrupt machine politics. That's how the Democratic Party, to a great extent, looked to young people. But uh, we were at least in the in the uh, faction or in the tribe that thought reform was possible as well as necessary, and that's what both uh, what what I did a lot in the '60s and beyond, and my wife too. She was very active in the local democratic politics wherever we lived, um, and the battles in Chicago were very colorful in the later '60s around those kind of issues, uh, and by colorful I mean in terms of race as well as. Drama.
0: So in between those years, you know, the Democratic Party has become a lot weaker as an institution. So by the time I came on the scene and was involved um, and had my own Tilly moment, you could say in 2000, watching a uh, a presidential campaign actually not even make the threshold of 3% in order to get matching funds and yet be the margin of victory for a reactionary Republican. And so that that was an indelible.
1: You're talking about the Nader campaign.
0: Talking about the Nader campaign in 2000, exactly. We've seen growing support for you in the polls in recent days leading up to the election. But what are you saying to your supporters to keep them from going into that ballot booth and getting a last second moment of panic and voting for Al Gore instead?
1: I'm saying if they believe in the causes that we're espousing, and they're very often their causes, universal health care, a real move on poverty, abolishing corporate welfare, law and order for the rich and powerful, a clean environment, uh, they'll vote for us.
0: I was working for DSA at the time of the election as its youth organizer. uh, That's the Democratic Socialists of America and traveling around to college campuses, talking with, with college activists about politics, including the election and just hearing over and over again this mantra from activists that it didn't matter who won, that there were no consequences either way or that, um, you know, once again, people should vote their hopes and not their fears or not vote for the lesser evil. And after eight years of Clinton in a sort of similar moment to after having many years of Roosevelt and the New Deal. It, it, it was an attractive offer for a lot of young voters, something that breaks with this uh, consensus around neoliberal politics and uh, an emptying of, of political possibility that seemed to happen in the 90s. So there was a real hunger for something different in the 2000 election. But the consequence was that not enough people had that moment in the ballot box and recognizing the threat from the Republican side and the threat of a a Republican victory. And so George Bush became the president. And I'll never forget reading an op-ed by filmmaker Michael Moore a couple of months into the Bush administration, um, saying that, you know, Bush wasn't doing anything that President Gore wouldn't have done. Um and, and that that really affected me as some really bad thinking on the left and bad thinking by progressives. But this this these machines and these organizations, these strong organizations um, uh, by the the 90s and after the the certainly the Clinton era, they were much weaker and less decisive in politics than the institutions that you faced as a as a young activist.
1: Well, because part of the reason it was was that we had won some victories, uh, those who wanted to change the party. McGovern led. Before he was presidential nominee, uh, he was one of the leaders, key leaders in the party of a massive reform of how uh, the party would parties would be constituted, who would come to the national conventions, breaking the power of the machine to control presidential nomination process and by 1972, and and McGovern became the nominee, but. The fact that party primaries—that the people themselves could choose who the party candidate would be—that was very barely present until uh, the late '60s. Hubert Humphrey was nominee of the Democratic Party. He didn't win primaries. He was the choice in the in the smoke-filled rooms. There really were smoke-filled rooms, and they really made those choices that way. And I, I was just reading about Kennedy in '60 getting he did win primaries but the popular choice in terms of poll numbers probably was Adlai stevenson still to to run again but the deal was in the smoke filled rooms that kennedy would be the nominee so 72 probably marks is is the first presidential election in the in the kind of new democratic party the southern racists were out of it and the machines had been surpassed
0: we weakened the machines hold over the party by opening up the nomination process to the electorate while not having any kind of campaign finance reform or other political reforms is really that hastened the neoliberal uh, takeover, if you will, of the party. You know, those smoke filled rooms as as uh, bad as they could be when you had the wrong people in them. Also were rooms filled with trade union leaders and social movement leaders and uh, representatives from different minority groups and so forth. When we're heading into the 90s, it's really the candidates with the most money, uh, the most charisma, the most media appeal uh, that make it through primaries, not just at the presidential level, but all the way down the ticket. And I'm not sure in the final analysis whether that was helpful or harmful to the quest for a more progressive or at least a, a more reliably progressive Democratic Party.
1: Yeah, and I think what you're uh, getting at, too, is that um, in the vacuum, uh, if the machines go away, there's a kind of vacuum that can be filled by the, a highly professionalized class of people uh, who run elections and who raise enormous sums from rich people to finance candidacies and and so the bad defeat of McGovern may maybe taught a lesson to ambitious Democrats uh, who wanted to run for high office which is you know you're not going to get anywhere if you're progressive because you're going to be a weak candidate with a weak foundation uh, but the corporate sector was willing to finance Democrats which I don't think in the 60s we were quite uh, aware uh, of that whole dynamic But there's another part of the dynamic that I experienced directly. Mickey, my wife, was a Kennedy delegate in 1980 to the National Convention in New York, Madison Square Garden. And uh, I was quite moved, really, emotionally, by the fact that the convention process was filled with these caucuses representing uh, the different social movements, a women's caucus, environmental caucus, of course, a black caucus, a Latino caucus, gay caucus, and it just seemed to me, overwhelmingly, the fact that the grassroots people at the convention came there through social movements, not because they were party regulars so much right. as because they then saw being present in the party was an important part of their activism as movement people. That was, I think, very much the character of that, uh, the party beginning in the, in the 80s at the base, not in terms of what the party as a, you know, a bureaucracy represented or nationally.
0: And that's what my research academically has shown over the years is that, you know, really since the 50s, the average rank and file democratic activist is someone who's motivated by ideas and values and issues, um, certainly not the uh, instrumentalist activist of you know, the, the, the forties or the, or the machines of someone who's a precinct captain because they know that will get them a job Right. from the fifties on. And, and, uh, especially out here in the Western United States, uh, you, you find your, your precinct captain is somebody who exactly like you said, like c- got their start as a, a college feminist activist or an anti-war activist. And each one of these social movements tends to replenish the ranks of the activists year by year. So, you know, the, the folks who are uh, uh, on the older side of the curve now um, in the party, say here in California um, that I run into, you're talking people who cut their teeth in anti apartheid work or um, in the struggles for um, uh, against the the attacks on affirmative action in California back in the 90s, like that generation of Latino activists, for, activists, for example, are now very well represented in the legislature and in the ranks of the Democratic Party. So one of the things we've got to kind of get on the board here about the Democratic Party and what it is, is that it is a space that is constantly churning with social movement activism and social movement demands.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, just to be historical about it a little. So when we moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1960, we became very aware of the fact that that party had been remade by the United Auto Workers Union and allied with liberals. They took over the party in the in the 40s and 50s from old line Democrats of the machine type. And by, by 60, you could think that the Democratic Party of Michigan was like a labor party in England, given what it stood for and who was active within it. On the other hand, Another indelible memory was a meeting that we had, Tom Hayden, I, and a couple other SDS people, with a guy named Neil Stabler, who was the, had been the head of the Democratic Party of Michigan and had been a partner of Ruther and others in remaking the Democratic Party. We had lunch with him. I remember this. And he said, well, I, re- I was like you guys in the early 30s. Uh, I was a socialist. And then we realized with the New Deal that um, we needed to be in the in in the Roosevelt alliance and the Roosevelt coalition. And he said, "So we learned to take the our red ties off. We didn't wear a red tie anymore, but we were in the Democratic coalition, the New Deal coalition. And and here's what got us: we won everything we wanted. This is this is in 1962 when the civil rights movement is in its most intense moment." And he thinks they've already won uh, what they wanted back from the 30s. Well, we, we knew we had to replace this guy as well, right. however nice and well-meaning uh, he, we might have thought him to be. So, you know, I, and I don't know what I what point I'm making with that other than that there's always fuel within the Democratic Party for the upstart new to challenge uh, those who were who running it, because whatever compromises or... Or fatigue, you know, they were experiencing. And the, we found in the early 60s that that 30s generation was pretty fatigued and pretty complacent uh, and pretty retrograde in terms of what needed to be done about race and about the war and the arms race, as two examples.
0: So we fast forward to today, and there seems to be a lot of young activists in and around the party or uh, engaged in the Bernie Sanders campaign, engaged by the Bernie Sanders campaign, who are sort of in a similar moment right now and talking with uh, previous generations of leaders, even folks who would have a radical background or social movement background, who now are leaders in the Democratic Party or elected officials or both, who are saying, hey, we've come so far. We need to be realistic about what we can achieve um, or seem to have complete blinders or blind spots for whole areas of policy or whole areas of struggle. So in the same way that a a New Deal Democrat who'd made his peace with the establishment for the sake of higher wages or unemployment insurance and all those things that must have felt like gigantic achievements for anybody who would come come up in the 30s. Um, that they were uninterested in pushing the envelope on the question of racial justice. In the 1960s, a question was called in America about racial justice. It was one of these moments uh, that happened throughout American history in which there's a conflict point over lingering inequality and lingering white supremacy and structures of white supremacy. And that question was called directly on the Democratic Party and activists, black activists and white allies in the new left and so forth, and and in the labor movement, said to Democratic politicians and Democratic leadership, we cannot be both a progressive, urban, uh, anti-racist labor party in the north and the party of the planter class, racist class in the south. Like We can't do both anymore. And... The question was forced on the party. It seems to me that there's a similar existential question for the Democratic Party around the power of corporations and the wealthy, a question that the Democratic Party actually wrestled with and took aside back in the 1930s. It's sort of come back. And once again, the Democratic Party is in the United States trying to be both a party of working people consumers, middle class folks, really like everyone in the economy except for corporations and the wealthy, but also get money from, uh, get policy from, get support from uh, exactly that uh, ruling class or that upper class. And that, not that I think the party will ever become a, a pure party of any kind. It seems that there's right now a struggle Trying to get it, get the party to take sides.
1: Yes, and the healthcare issue is actually about that. That's what it's about, because and and I think it's been largely misreported in a way because it's it's like people don't want to give up their own their insurance and have a government program. Uh, that's probably not the, a, a very good argument against Medicare for all. The the argument that's never made but is probably the the thing that's operating. Is uh, if you put Medicare for all in, you pretty much destroy the business of the, of the health insurance industry. You are uh, putting the uh, pharmaceutical corporations under public control in a degree that you uh, that they don't want to have. Right. Uh, those at least two, and not to mention the uh, you know the hospital industry, whatever you call the the, the medical industry itself, uh, and uh, that's. To me, the nub of the matter, can a government of the United States basically tell a major private corporate interest, you are going out of business to a great extent. You're gonna become a much more marginal business than you ever have been before.
0: Well, we created that industry, uh, you know, only a few decades ago, also through public policy. Exactly. It's not like it fell to earth from heaven. Um, or that you know people have been engaged in health insurance um, as a craft for generations that we have to we have to preserve.
1: You're right. That's one example of. I mean, the the entire Green New Deal is about corporate power being being constrained and overcome. Uh, the whole housing issue. Uh, we we have housing as a as a uh, commodity in this country when in fact the private housing industry cannot provide affordable housing for the majority of American people. That's evidently true. Uh, Just those three examples, not to mention the need for a strong uh, protection of labor organizing rights uh, vis-a-vis corporate power, uh, and and even what uh, Elizabeth Warren had proposed, which is uh, having workers' representation on the boards of directors of major corporations—that would be another fundamental reform. So the, those are all parts of the emerging or unfolding progressive policy agenda that hopefully after November we can really battle
0: for. So what I've what I've heard is a whole a series of questions that we've got to tackle before we can talk about what what this phase two is after we've collected the underpants, what do we do with them to turn them into profit? After we've decided, OK, the Democratic Party, certainly far from perfect. It's a it's an arena of struggle and uh, but a a an indispensable one and uh, and represents a, a, a kind of iron logic or an iron the Tilly rule that at the end of the day, we we have to do no harm and we can't be uh, engaging in electoral uh, activity that actually puts someone worse in office. So with all of those things together, I I think that we've got to first talk about what the Democratic Party is as a as an institution or a set of uh, a set of institutions. Um, what does it mean to be a political party when the choice of candidates is made by thousands or millions of people casting an election, often people that don't even have to register with your party? So. What actually is there of the Democratic Party? And then we've got to talk about the idea of organizing outside of it or if the the left or socialists or progressives, whatever we want to call it, call it should go out and start their own party and break with it. Um, and that debate is still really alive, of course, out there um, as new generations of activists um, insist on Repeating the mistakes of their forebears or figuring out the questions on their own, depending on your perspective. Um, and then you raised this question of, about, or the, the issue of realignment and the fact that uh, it took a whole bunch of work and struggle uh, 50 years ago to even make of the two parties uh, a, a rational left and right, right? We had the parties were, were neither left nor right when you started out uh, uh, in politics in in the forties. So is, has that, wh- what does that mean now? And in what ways are the parties still too similar? Um, and then I think we've got to talk about what strategies and tactics and path we can take. What would it mean to be a left organization or party within the democratic party? We talk a lot about Uh, The need for both inside and outside strategies, but what does that inside part actually look like, especially when the 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 tent that we're talking about is uh, kind of more circusy than military? Um, And I think over the next few episodes, we should, you know, dive into those questions, get some perspective from people who are out working on these issues in the field around the country, possibly around the world. Um, And you know, keep coming back to these themes of uh, uh, of the 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 absolute necessity of taking the Democratic Party seriously, but also not taking its current policy positions or where it's at at any given given moment for granted.
1: So I would add one maybe ultimate question, uh, and that is that we would try to encourage ourselves and people who are sharing this podcast, a quest for what kind of party can we make of the Democratic Party? It claims to be a people's party. Can it be? How would that look? What kind of party would it be? As we go forward, that's one of the underlying themes, I think, in all that we're trying to do here. That's our show for now. You've been listening to Talking Strategy, Making History, the first season of which we call A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Democratic Party. Tonight was one installment. You'll be hearing more in weeks to come. You can support us and get exclusive full interviews with our guests at patreon.com/tsmh. patreon.com slash tsmh. Patreon.com slash TSMH. See you next time.